Hello, everyone, and welcome to People Make the Difference, the Lorian podcast. We bring together the best guests from across HR, TA, technology, and people-related functions to talk about all aspects of talent acquisition, talent management, industry insights, and much more with the aim to give our listeners an insight into what the best organizations do in this space to acquire and look after the people that make a difference within their businesses. In this episode, I'm really lucky to talk to Dr. Alison Corwood. We talk about diversity, we talk about assessment and diversity. We talk about Dr. Alison's path from midwifery all the way through to being an Innovate UK, uh, Innovator of the UK. It's a brilliant episode and I really hope you enjoy it. If you've got any questions, if you'd like to participate, if you'd like to come involved as a guest on the podcast, please don't hesitate to contact us. Hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, It's personally one of my favourites that we've done. Um, And yeah, hopefully speak to you all soon. Take care. So to kick off then, Alison, thank you so much for um, for being with us here today. Would you mind um, giving an introduction of yourself to our listeners, um, maybe giving them an overview of your career and, and let them know a little bit about what you're doing at the moment? Okay, well, hi, and thank you, Darren, for having me. So my name is Alison, as you've heard, and I'm co-founder um, of a company called Sammy Select. Um, but actually, I've started my career really differently. Um, I'm actually a nurse and a midwife by background. Um and uh, I've worked in Calcutta, in Malawi, um, and that was really what I wanted to do with my life. But I hurt my back. I mean, you can't, you don't know, but I'm over six foot. <laughs> and uh, working in Malawi is a lot of babies um, born on the floor. So I couldn't practice as, as a midwife anymore. And I went into teaching research and I just got really passionate about how we can make recruitment fairer. Yeah. Um, so that's just seems so important um and so now i'm ceo of um sammy select and i guess you'll hear more about the company in a bit that's amazing that, that that's the best thing about this podcast finding things out yeah. about people that that you wouldn't have otherwise known I, I i guess you've got so many stories of the adventures and stuff that you had in all these different countries and everything um yeah. what i mean because that is such a such a a change from what you were doing what What's the kind of background story of Sammy Select? What inspired you to 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 create the product in the first place? So what what I found was that admissions to health profession selection, which was obviously my area of interest, just wasn't um, necessarily fair. So, for example, we knew that in in admissions to medicine, for example, you know, ten years ago, um, there were three times more white medical students than people with a non-white heritage. More recently, that's improved, maybe um, twice as many. Um, but there just seemed to be a real discrepancy. And yet the people that we were looking after were have, you know, great social diversity. And um, I thought we surely can do better in a competitive process. So um, I set out to look at the literature, to be honest. In recruitment, there seems to be quite a lot of um, maybe claims for how things work. And I wanted to go back to the roots and look at the data. And I do have a bit of an academic head and see what we could do to really show um, how we could improve equality, diversity and inclusion. Um, So Sammy, the product, which is an online asynchronous um, video interview platform, and actually the company was born out of that. Um, Some of us are laymen like me, Alison, from a healthcare perspective. I've only ever, my whole life I've, I've recruited for IT and technologists. What does the kind of recruitment process, the assessment process look like traditionally for, for healthcare then? Just I'm just interested to know. 
from a, like a different sector perspective? Does it vary? I imagine it varies per like discipline within it, but is there a kind of standard process that a lot of roles have to go through? So there is a standard process. So everybody um, in the UK anyway applies to the University Central Admission System, UCAS, um, to have the minimum entry requirements. But then obviously attributes and values are so important to caring professions, right? So we need people who can demonstrate compassion and empathy, good communication skills. And so that's how those are assessed traditionally in a personal interview, a panel interview. Um, but then we wanted to see if we could find a way of alleviating unintended human bias. So um, quite often research has shown that we recruit for likeness. And um, with the um, approach that um, I've brought online, it's called multiple mini interviews. So you can see it's a bit like speed dating for interview, <laughs> where applicants um, meet a number of different assessors and they have a short um, interview moment with them where they're asked a question that they're not expecting so they can't um, rehearse their answers um, and also the interviewer doesn't actually know anything about them before they've met them so they don't come into the room knowing that they've worked for a large supermarket or done their gold dv and have a perspective on them they're actually just um, assessing them in their answers to those questions that the applicant hasn't been able to um, necessarily prepare for and so there's lots of um design uh, features of the interview process um, that we use in semi-select that try to build fairness in and um, alleviate a kind of unintended um, human bias. So you asked me about um, applicants to met to healthcare, that's kind of how it how it evolves from there. Yeah, that's so interesting. So the interviewer wouldn't have kind of a job history, a CV profile, anything like that, they just, they are, assessing the individual based on I guess um competency type questions I guess or situational questions perhaps yeah so the situational questions that for the majority yeah. yeah and it's because if you think about it um in um clinical practice for example you quite often don't know what's going to happen right so you have to be somebody who can be responsive who can be creative in the situation and use different skills quite often there's not a right or a wrong but you need to see things from different perspectives. And it's an articulation of that in the answer to the situational questions that demonstrates that person's ability to um, prioritise conflicting demands, you know, emotion and logic um, and those kinds of things. But what's really interesting was um, I was funded by Innovate UK to um, do a market validation exercise to see if there were people outside of the field of healthcare who might be... Um, who might find that kind of way of interviewing useful. And I went to um, large UK airline and we were talking about cabin crew, right? And they wanted um, their customers to feel looked after and the cabin crew needed to look uh, work as part of a team. They needed to be able to communicate. And it was through that we realised that actually the principles on which Sammy Select is built is actually applicable to um, areas outside the field of healthcare because people want those kinds of values and attributes within their teams if that makes sense yeah that's so interesting and it it I really firmly believe in this stuff because it distills what work is into the actual yeah. job I think so much when you look at job descriptions and how people are interviewed very little of that whole assessment process is based on what will that person actually be able to deliver and, and do in a job and that I just find that crazy I mean I was talking to, to Haley from diversity about it that we spend collectively millions and millions and millions of pounds hiring people that 
have such an impact in our organisations and and we don't really even most organisations don't have an idea of how they will perform when when they when they get there. Um, yes. So that's what we were. That's what we were finding. And actually, it's 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 so important that you get someone not only fit for the role, but they're going to stay right, and they're going mm. to stay because they're happy and they're flourishing in that environment. So understanding more about um, the person with an authentic interview, if you like, rather than um, coached answers um, and anticipated questions seemed to me any myself anyway to be a really good way forward and that's that's kind of the way we've gone um, that's so interesting and you're right because competency in situational questions especially when people know what's coming it can be a bit of who's revised and worked the hardest a bit like school exams where you kind of it's who's revised to give the best answer as opposed to who's the who in a genuine situation like that would give the right response or be on mm-hmm. be along the lines of the right response i do wonder and i don't expect you to to know this but i guess the expectations of the interviewer is different in terms of the responses i think it's one thing isn't it expect um giving candidates a better experience and a more inclusive experience but i guess i think there must be some coaching that we need to do to kind of get the the interviewer to anticipate different responses than they used to and maybe score people differently than they had done previously. Yes, and I think that's a really good point. But also we've done lots of training for for interviewers. And I realised I went to a large um, medical school actually a few years ago and they um, kind of did interviews on steroids where they had these days where they had like 50, 60 candidates going through all at the same time. And it just really struck me when you're immersed in that situation that it doesn't matter how much an interview has been trained, if they give a nuanced, uh, different intonation of their voice or their body language is different, the question might be the same, but the applicant's perception of what they're being asked or that moment is different. And so that really led me towards the looking at asynchronous video interviews where you're using pre-recorded questions because then every applicant gets exactly the same interview moment, if that makes sense. And so you're getting some consistency in the way that applicants are receiving the question. Um, and then interviewers, I think it's hard because it's natural, isn't it, that you might recruit for lightness. Um, and so what we do to alleviate that is we have quite structured criteria against which to assess and they're not given long to think about it <laughs> and they don't have a discussion. So in the panel interview, you probably had a number of people together having a chat about somebody. Yeah. In the methodology that we're using, which is called multiple mini interviews, there is no conversation. It's one person making autonomous um assessment of that into of that applicant um, and if they have seven questions then you've got seven different people making that assessment which makes it yeah. very different from a, a panel interview and then those people they talk and they influence each other in the interviews yeah. on the panel don't they absolutely and yeah. gosh I've never thought about that before but of course I mean the person who's being interviewed at 10 30 a.m well, the interview is fresh they've had their second coffee of the day yes. is going to get a much different experience of the interview at 4 30 where you're maybe yes. the fifth candidate to be interviewed yes um, well, there's lots of got... research yeah looking at that interview fatigue over time yeah and also um without breaks so you you tend to kind of get mesmerized or you're listening for the same things well the other thing is i know and to be honest i was probably not dissimilar myself years ago before I did all this but when we're interviewing I I worked in Malawi right if I found somebody who'd volunteered in Africa we'd end up having a nice chat 
and that influences your perception of that person but it doesn't mean to say the next candidate who hasn't volunteered in Africa is any less good for the role but you've created that really nice rapport and that can't help but influence your your outcome whereas with the um, multiple mini interview methodology you ask the applicant the question and then they answer and the intention is you don't have a two-way conversation and you really stick to the structure of it so that mm. every applicant gets the same interview experience to enhance um, parity really and therefore fairness which is critical to what we're trying to do. I'm going completely off script here with my planned questions. It's just <laughs> no, it's so great. interesting. Is there any um is there any research to show that people would pick different applicants if they'd done a different interview style than they did? Was there any research that kind of went compared, well, you hired person X. Um, but here's all the interviews again. You you would have picked person A if that would have been different. Is there any kind of evidence to yes. show something like that? Yeah, I can think of lots. I mean, there's two things come to mind. One is is some research that we know about that if you um, interview without a visual, right? So if you um, just had a text-based CV with no name, no gender, and just that the person's background, are they more likely to be shortlisted than somebody who that you had a, a you know perhaps a visual, a, a video, or whatever? Um, and the answer is yes. So that improved, has improved diversity hiring from a gender perspective. Um, but interesting enough, I've just been doing some work with a university in Germany um, and they brought in the multiple mini interview method and they said it's altered their applicant profile by as much as 70% because they were giving people a chance where they wouldn't necessarily normally have had a chance because they could interview more people because it was online. And also they were kind of a little, the criteria were different. So a little bit more open-minded and very less um, grades based um, and more attributes and values. And it's been really striking. But what's brilliant is, is those students are thriving on the programme because that's the key thing, right, isn't it? Is, is you, as we mentioned earlier on, that you recruit people, but you want them to go on to do well in that role. So the, the example in Germany is fascinating because not only have they had a, a change of, of profile, but actually those applicants are doing really well as well. Yeah, but I mean, that's the ultimate barometer of success, isn't it? That they come in and they thrive and they exceed expectations. And there isn't much much better, I guess, in, in any organisation, whether it's healthcare or in a tech firm where, you know, that that hire that you, 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 you offer a role to comes in and hits the ground running and they're and they're brilliant. That that's always a that's always a great feeling. Um why do you think kind of assessment technologies haven't been so inclusive in the past? I mean I, I think I know why I now I know what Sammy Select does. Um, <laughs> I think it's a good question and it's a hard one. I think there's bias intrinsic to human assessment. I think we can't if I think if we think we can remove bias then that's a quite a naive assumption. But what we can do is go a long way to alleviate it and we can do better than what we're now. And also when I look at inclusivity, I'm just, I don't think about gender and ethnicity um, in isolation. There's neurodiversity as well. And we're doing quite a lot of work with, with, with neurodiverse individuals. Um, I think in the recruitment space, there's a lot of, so I don't want to kind of make huge generalizations, but companies generally want to make money, right? <laughs> Do they make money at the expense of quality? That's a question to ask, I guess. There's nothing wrong with, with wanting to 
obviously maximise profits, but we're more about social impact. Yeah, I want to use data to try and make a difference. Um, and I think the reason why technologies haven't been so inclusive is, is has data been really applied in a genuine way to show what technology can and can't do? Um, and then the stages of the recruitment funnel, right? So if you look at Diversely, they're right at the top, but there's no point Diversely doing all the brilliant things that they do unless that's funneled down through all the stages of the interview pro um, recruitment process. So I think there's lots of reasons why assessment technologies may not have been as successful in terms of inclusivity in the past. Um, and that's about having the conversation ripple right through end to end in the recruitment process, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, all, all the questions are, are popping out of my head now, Alison. Now, now I'm actually get the opportunity to speak to an expert. So I could I was told, and this could be completely wrong, that general cognitive ability, or maybe it was an older piece of research, but general cognitive ability was the best predictor of role-based success. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, um, but regardless of whether it is, where does the kind of, where does almost technical assessment fit in? Obviously, we ask the situational assessment, where do we find out if that person can you know, do that bit of code or that, um, I don't know, doctor has got experience in that area. Um, you're smiling, so I don't know if that means I was completely off with that <laughs> ability point. But I think it's a slightly different question. I think you can get those answers from previous experience. You can give them a task to do um, to establish whether they can can uh, write the code or um, I guess from a health profession's perspective, you wanted to, to find out whether, you know, a doctor's got a certain skill, ask them. You can do a role-based test as well. Um, what we're kind of more interested in is the values and attributes that drive people to maintain motivation. For example, in health services, it's, it's tough, but it's tough everywhere, right? There's workforce pressures internationally. So things like resilience are massive. You know, people need to go in and be strong. Um, and be able to cope. And I think those things are really important. So in my mind, you could be fantastic at, at writing code, but if you don't fit as part of the team and you and you can't um, manage the day-to-day -day challenges in a sense that you, you almost, you need both, don't you, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the, the counterpoint to the, the ability point is you can, you know, you can teach someone a skill but you can't always but you can't change behavior necessarily can you mm -hmm. so you know it's it's better to hire on attitude and behavior again it's it's a common saying isn't it and and then like, develop the develop the skills after um i think so what, to that point sorry no go for it i was going to say to that point though i think what we can do is massively improve organizational attitudes so if you've got someone who's neurodiverse for example they might just need um uh headphones noise um eliminating headphones for example to enable them to deal with that space they might need um the ability to just be able to change uh contrast on their laptop or understand how to do that those things and support within an organization so i feel like it's a two-way street so the applicant has their role and, and and apply for the role but i think organizations could do so much more to enhance um all aspects of ED&I within the organisation kind of on a day-to-day -day basis, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think, I think 
from my honest experience, a lot of the organisations we work with, they really want to make a difference and they really want to do these things. But sometimes it's just that awareness, isn't it? Yeah. Of working environment and how, yeah, it's just that awareness and knowledge to knowledge to, to put these things in place. Um, what I think is really interesting, though, is to get that knowledge. Where do you get it from? And um, so I've been doing some work with neurodiverse individuals. We've just been funded by Innovate UK. Um, and uh, I don't I've, I've just been awarded a Woman in Innovation Award by Innovate UK. And that's to customise SAMI for um, neurodiverse individuals. And the key driver in that project, which is what I've heard from doing some preliminary work with individuals who have neurodiverse challenges is not to make assumptions right so if you've got an organization they think well we'll do this and we'll do that whether that ticks the box or not um it may well do it might be the right thing but actually unless we talk to people who are potentially affected to find out what's going to work for them then it's not always necessarily going to be a fit for purpose strategy um and i feel like that's quite a new way of looking at it um and i was yeah. talking to somebody she was an autistic person and she was just saying don't commoditize us Alison and don't make assumptions I'm like okay <laughs> but it's so true and, and the true. insights that I've got from them is it's really um rich information that will help us rather than making decisions based on assumption yeah well I couldn't agree more but it's just unlocking and walking through those doors isn't it and asking those questions and yes. I think we're so used to um just on a broader workforce point not even related to diversity the the younger generations in particular in the workforce everyone is so used to personalization now aren't they we we talk about lorried about personalized attraction campaigns and everyone's used to you know you you, you turn on Netflix and it tells you things that you're going to like you put on you know, your music app, it tells you what you're going to like listening to. We're all used to having everything tailored for us much more than anyone ever before. And I think, yeah, I mean, obviously there's the neurodiversity and the diversity point in general, but I think just personalization in general is just going to be a huge part of the workplace going forward, whether that's at home and picking, yeah. you know, your kit at home or whether, you know, there's, well, you see it in modern offices, don't you? There's loads mm -hmm. of different environments now in modern offices for people to work into. So that's super interesting. I think so, yeah, and also it really um, supports the EDI agenda, especially if you're looking at, you know, I've got three kids, right? It's really hard. Um, but now with home working, I can pick them up, but then I just do, I work in the evening. That's about me making choices. But um, if you've got technology as an enabler, um, and I think that's where I was coming from with Sammy Select, build a tech for good in recruitment, right? So we use tech in a good way to break down barriers. But then I've come back to the point we don't know what the barriers are unless we talk to people to find out what they are. And then it's yeah. it's yeah, customize. It's getting over the fear, I would call it the fear to ask people what they feel the barriers are, rather than like you say, kind of going down a like a, a well-trodden path. Yeah. Um, yeah. What what's next for Sammy Select then? I don't expect you to give me any of your innovation trade secrets away, but <laughs> are there any new kind of developments? I mean, I know you spoke about the neurodiversity side of things that you're doing but is there anything else we could expect to see in terms of new new features of the products anytime soon and um, the one thing that we have launched a couple of weeks ago just as a, a an early stage is a multilingual version because i was really keen to see if we could and again it's about opening up the applicant pool right 
Um, so um, we had a customer in Wales who asked us for a Welsh version. So the UI was translated into Wales, all the uh, into Welsh, all the content into Welsh, um, which is super exciting. But now that functionality is built into the front end, then we're looking at. Um, I'm going to Canada actually to look at um, seeing if we could, there might be some opportunity to translate into French. And it, so again, it's about uh, providing a platform that people can optimize. They can go in and, and click. Um, if they want the multilingual yeah. functionality, so that's really exciting. Um, but the main thing for us at the moment is is the the neurodiverse um, customizations, which yeah. is which is very exciting. That'll keep you busy. It will. <laughs> um, you mentioned in a bit UK a couple of times, and as I am with with healthcare, I'm just as much of a novice with academia, to be honest. And I found it really interesting when I was. Uh, introduced to you initially and look for your profile in how innovation and new products and new new you know startups basically could be spun out of universities and similar institutions how did that process work for you and how do people like innovate uk come into that that's a good question so i was really fortunate that i was supported by the university to do um, a market validation exercise and at the end of that um, there was an opportunity to pitch for some Innovate UK funding, which we were fortunate to get. And the caveat to that was that we spun out. So um, I kind of went from a lovely, safe uh, university bubble to, oh, my gosh, <laughs> what, you know, what's this about? Um, yeah. And I think the thing to, that I would say is spinning out is a lot of process. And I was supported by the university um, their technology um, TTO trans technology transfer officers sort of providing guidance um, and that was invaluable but the main thing I would say it's really important to make sure the IP spun out into the company even if that means that you have to give up some equity yeah because going forward that's really important for the sustainability um, of the company um, I think the other thing I learned was um, like I fell into holes I didn't even know existed right at the start <laughs> and I thought well that's fine just don't do it twice but also um so I thought I surrounded myself with people that I trusted um and I guess something that I've learned on this kind of strange journey that I've had is having a whole career in healthcare where I was always doing the giving I've reached yeah. out more in the last three years than my whole life and people have have been amazing people want to help and support um and it's just being open to the learning, right? I've learned so much um, and listening to people with experience and then surrounding yourself with people that work for you to support you. Um, because it is a transition to go from a totally unrelated, non-technical, non-commercial background to being female founder of a tech startup. Yeah, and when we, but when we talk about, you know, innovation and diversity it's coming from different backgrounds and different experiences that you know can create the the best innovation can't it um yeah i i can imagine it was quite scary being spun out and going through all these new experiences for the for the first time and yeah it you know it it must have been it must have been challenging at times is there any advice you'd give um to people who would looking to maybe follow a similar path i think um my main advice would be stay strong because you can do it. Like if you've got a vision and you know what you want to do, like I wanted to make a difference in my way, um, that's what keeps you going. Um, and 
I think the advice about if you fall into a hole, fine, but don't do it again. It seems to be quite a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Learn yeah. your mistakes. Yes, that's exactly it. Yeah. And um, I guess another thing is quite difficult is that if you've gone from being um, somebody who's quite experienced and senior, so people will come to you, it's actually quite hard to go to a place where you're the person doing all the asking. Yeah. And that takes kind of courage, I guess. And um, don't give up, I think, is the thing. So I um, I never dreamt that I would get a, an, an Innovate Woman in Innovation Award. I That's just amazing. wasn't on my radar. And um, and now I have. I, I think, well, how did that happen, you know? So I think if I can go from where I was three years ago as a university lecturer with a background in midwifery to, to what we're trying to do now, then, yeah. um, you know, I think others can everyone can <laughs> yeah absolutely and it's such a great story Alice. I really appreciate you sharing it with us um but I can imagine you're used to being the the expert at, at what you were doing and so people would come to you and it's your expectations then of what your what success in a day looks like look yes. like changes doesn't it um but one thing that every founder I've spoke to as part of this podcast has said every single one has said be surrounded by good people yeah. um and that seems to be a real, a real common trait. Yeah. Um, so it's actually, sorry. sorry. I was going to say, actually, it's been quite humbling. And we, I was, uh, I was thinking about six months ago, and um, there was a lot going on. And um, just a really good example was somebody who, quite a high profile individual in the space, um, who I kind of knew, I reached out to that person and I said, I really need some help, but I kind of need it now. Um, this afternoon we had like a critical point it was to yeah and um and that individual she uh, they picked out the phone my mobile and phoned me and within like 20 minutes we were just sorted and I just thought gosh um it's amazing how people do want to help genuinely yeah um it's just a lot about networking as well I guess that's something else I've learned um yeah. it's never really been something that I would normally have done but um, that seems to, you never know what's going to come out of any situation. And that seems to be a great, you know, great thing too. Well, networking is a skill in itself, isn't it? And one that I don't think many people would ever say that they're, that they're good at. Again, that's, that's absolutely coming out of your comfort zone and, and being able to yeah. do that. Um, but really valuable, really valuable. I'm, I'm lucky to know a couple of really good people who are, who are well networked and just the opportunities you get from that yes. are, are fantastic. Um, so, Alison, 2023, from, from my perspective in, in my world in, in, in recruitment, is shaping up to be a year so far that is really hard to predict from a work perspective and, and, a, and an employment perspective because one minute it's, you know, carry on, people are hiring, there's loads of empty roles, we can help loads of clients. And then the next minute, an organisation put the shutters down and say, we're worried about the economy, we're not going to hire anymore. What I would say is all the data, all the underlying ONS data is actually like still really positive. Um, yeah. It's almost, um, there's a lot of fear in, in the UK, particularly at the moment, I think economically, but hopefully that will that will change. Um, are there any trends or any themes that you think we can expect to see this year? And I, and I made a note to flag this because when I was doing my research, I know that you've done quite a lot of um, work in the AI field. So it'd be interesting to get some of your perspectives <laughs> on um, everything that we're seeing with, you know, chat, GBT and stuff like that at the moment as well. But are there any themes or 
or any predictions you'd make for this year from a from a work perspective or even from a an artificial intelligence perspective? I think from a work perspective, I think people are going to drive uh, the EDI agenda more than anything else. I, th I think applicants are becoming more discerning about who they want to work for. And I think that's going to be a big influencer. So if there's, you know, if an organisation is a bit tokenistic in how they're saying, well, we're doing this and that for inclusivity, I think that applicants uh, feel more strongly about it than ever and are going to want to see more evidence of that and more transparency in terms of how organisations are achieving that. So I think that's going to kind of drive the whole EDI agenda more strongly, but from a slightly different perspective. Um, I don't think we'll ever get back to pre-COVID working. I think that's, you know, with this hybrid is, is definitely here to stay. And then, of course, um, we're looking at technology. So as you said, we've done some work with AI um, and our main work stream is looking at explainability. So there's so much in the recruitment space we know about psychometric testing or online testing, and this kind of magic black box and actually demystifying what's in that black box, box and how can you explain those selection decisions from the uh, machine learning that's going on inside it is really critical and we know large corporates have been caught out in the past and we know there's new e-regulations uh, uh, for um, regulating AI and recruitment they're here to stay and so what what we're doing is um, we've actually got we're doing some research to kind of future-proof our tech looking at um, the kind of dialogue within an interview, how we can look at um, what words create bias and just um, better understand <clears throat> how we can use AI to perhaps de-bias content, for example, as a starting point. Um, personally, I think we're quite a long way off from actually saying, this is my interview. I'm using this um, machine learning to analyze the content of it. And this is the result. I think humans will should always be making that final decision. Um, it's using AI in a way that's um, authentic, is transparent, is defensible, explainable um, to help us in a, in a good way rather than making magic decisions that nobody can understand. So I think the whole explainability thing with AI um, is going to get more and more important, but it's definitely here to stay. And chatbot um, GPT is huge. And again, regulation of that. I don't know quite know how that's going to happen. <laughs> But, Everyone's just absolutely terrified of it at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Even from a university perspective, actually, or you know, just assignments for kids, it's just it is huge, and, and regulation is is really critical. But nonetheless, exciting, and I I think change brings good. It's what we do with that good, and and obviously from my side, it's it's making sure that we do it in a fair and transparent way. Brilliant. So thank you so much, Alison, for giving me so much of your time being so generous with it today this has been i think i could ask another another 10 questions at least um all about um, <laughs> assessment so thanks very much um so this podcast is called people make the difference um it's a phrase that our md david getting says a lot in that the people in an organization are the ones that truly make a difference to that company make a difference to the bottom line to diversity to the culture to absolutely everything so as a feature of this podcast we ask every guest to tell us about a person that's made a difference for their life obviously there'll be tons but i don't know if there's one specific person you could tell us about today 
There are tons, definitely, yes. But there is one person actually, and and it's a strange, unusual, probably example. But when I worked in Malawi on the labour ward, um, there was a midwife, um, Malawi midwife, and she worked in the most unimaginably hard situation, like day in day out. And um, it was quite ironic because I'm I said I'm very tall. She was probably about four foot, and so when we met, it was like this is really strange. Um, so I felt being an outsider already. Um, but what she taught me was um, just resilience and how to find a way, right? So if the power's gone off and someone needs a cesarean section and then there's somebody stolen the batteries, what do you do and how do you find a way? And I realised from what she did and, the, and the, the stress that she was working under taught me that there is always a way. It's just about how you find it. And that's really stood me in good stead in relation to making the transition that I did and running the company. And then we've pivoted a couple of times with the business and kind of listening and learning and just thinking, OK, step by step. But there is a way. And yes, this is stressful. But if somebody like her can can even, you know, she was looking at life and death, right? Really very different situation. But um, she was strong. And that's why I think. Um, that's true life. That's true pressure. True life yes. and death decisions, isn't it? Was yes. she just out of interest? Like I'm always interested in how, when you know these things are happening, true life or death scenarios, and that immense pressure. Was did she seem calm? Was it just I will find a solution kind of thing? Yes, she was, and I learned that I used to run a labour ward, and I used to say I've got first gear and sixth gear, and I've got very long legs, right? You don't run, but you just walk quickly, and it's like <laughs> a swan where your legs are just going nineteen to the dozen, yeah. but you have a way of being really calm on the outside because at the end of the day, that's that's the way forward. And looking at it step by step, so she never got overwhelmed that she showed anyway. Um, but there's also a humility in showing your emotion, and I think quite yeah. um, we, sh you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so bringing all those kind of qualities to trying to make a difference in the recruitment space, I guess she's been really impactful in terms of me understanding perhaps there's always a different way and yeah. maybe that different way has advantages that you never even knew. Let's go for it. Yeah, unbelievable. I think um, I think back to the births of my two kids and maybe naive, I don't, I don't know. I mean, we take a lot for granted in this country, don't we? But the, the midwives that we that we they just they just seemed superhuman to me what they did as being someone who's probably a little bit squeamish and stuff anyway but they were so so I think they was just so strong like calm in control of everything I just thought they were amazing and what I found amazing about that whole thing is that you never see them again you're with them for maybe a couple of days they yeah. are part of this life-changing experience for you. They guide you through it. And then they carry on with the shift. They've got, you know, five, six other people in that scenario and they do the same day in, day out. But you're like, it's massive in your life. And and I remember um, when my, after my little boy was born, my, my first, going to the pub, like some months after and, and seeing one of the midwives in the pub. and. I was like, I'm not going to buy him a drink. And like, he won't even, he not have a clue, he won't remember us or anything because that's just one part of his day. But I just remember being like, what? Well, I just thought they were awesome, what they do. Absolutely incredible. I do think to that point, though, I always said I, if I hadn't have hurt my back anyway, that I would stop being a midwife 
when Beth felt the same. So actually yeah. they are different as a midwife. You don't forget because everybody's different. And I think that it's um, every every different birth brings challenges, certainly when you're working somewhere like Malawi, where, oh, that, you yeah. know, the number of babies and, and, and mothers that died was obviously way higher than in the UK. Um, but it's it's a privilege, right? Yeah. Oh, so. yeah, it must be, it must be good to be part of such a huge experience for so many people. Yeah, yeah, I'm really fortunate. Yeah, I've just been awarded um, a fellowship at the Royal College of Midwives for my contribution to um, to the profession, which is actually a great honour. I've been in it probably 30 years now, a long time. Wow. <laughs> so, um, but it is a privilege as a, as a, as a it's not really a job, as a, as a role. And I feel really fortunate that I've, you know, had that as part of my life. Um, but actually, I do say running a busy labour ward stands you in very good stead for running a company because you don't know what's going to happen and what's going to come through the door and you just got to deal with it. I bet. Well, the awards keep stacking up, don't they? Um, and they can <laughs> be in two more different fields. So thank you so much for um, your time. I was thoroughly enjoyed you. it. Thank and... you. Thank you for having me. No problem.